Liberty lockdown, piss down your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Welcome everybody to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint. Today's episode is brought to you by What's Happening. H-A-P-A-N-I-N-G. That is Shane and Nico. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a little clip from their show so you know what they're all about. Make sure that you give them a follow. They're on iTunes, Stitcher, all over the place. I have a very special guest with me today. And it is Scott at MDVet4, the number four. And it's uh, MDVet for Peace. I assume that's Maryland. Yep, yep. Well, give us a little background on yourself. Uh, well, I uh, I was a Marine for 14 years. I've always been from Maryland. I was a Marine for 14 years. My job was civil affairs. And actually, I was in some of the same, uh, if anyone's listened to some of your past episodes, the same territory as your friend you did that long one with. Wow. Um, his name, like, like I stayed at Camp Bajaria where he was uh, maybe a year before he did. Uh, in any case, um, so I was a Marine for 14 years. I... Um, was civil affairs the whole time which is a well it's a different conversation but it's an interesting job our job was like to minimize civilian interference and get them to support us like the hearts and minds kind of stuff sure and then i went uh after four deployments i was at the civil affairs schoolhouse and then uh after 14 years i finally became a libertarian and kind of had enough of it and dropped to the ir the ready the reserve the ready reserve and finished my time out um and uh, kind of always um, sort of military technology and capabilities was a hobby and interest of mine. So, um, and then obviously I spend a little bit too much time battling on Twitter with people about, you know, what <laughs> don't we, we all, without, <laughs> what would we do without our beloved government? Yes. Well, don't yeah. we all. Um, <laughs> so, so did you have a similar experience to my buddy, Dave? I mean, what, what was your, well, uh, um, I mean, my job was so different from his uh, in certain ways, but there were also a lot of interesting things or like a lot of overlay. Like he talked about his time in Afghanistan and, and he was probably doing something. It's po- entirely possible we cross paths at one point because they would send us to if my read on what his job was by the time he was on his like near last deployments where he was um, – training afghan police and afghan security forces they call yep. they might have called those an sfat team security force assistance team mm-hmm. they would actually send me and um, one of my bosses over to 29 palms while they were getting ready to deploy to give them the um the coin strategy part of things that they should be um so it, it's possible that we cross paths at some point um <laughs> What's the coin strategy just for those? That um, so counterinsurgency, um, my, my boss at the time was a real big guru into it and sort of teaching, you know, how do we try to, and what's the, and, and I learned a good a, a bit about it too, cause I was right next to the Marine Corps history library, but how do we try to actually suppress an insert, beat, defeat an insurgency mm-hmm. um, and what works and what doesn't and, does anything all, work? Because <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> doesn't seem to work. Uh, you know, I I don't. I, I honestly, I, that's a really tough question. I kind of at various points in my life came to the position that it does not. Yeah. That really, I mean, that's part of where I 
one sort of position I've held and, you know, I think is a strong position is that really you can't let like there's no war that's worth it unless you're willing to kill like every man, woman and child. And there's really nothing worth that. Therefore, like there, peace is a better alternative. Yep. You I know, think, I think that's a fair logical conclusion. Um, um, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So no, no, go ahead. Um, so the reason I wanted to have you on is because you and I went back and forth and basically, you know, a, a common uh, rejoinder to libertarian ideology or, or anarchist ideology would be that, how do you defend yourself? You know, and usually I, I boil it down to a very low level argument that insurgencies really can't be put down unless you're willing to nuke the entire population, essentially, and that a, a well-armed populace um, such as America would be pretty much unconquerable, uh, barring some foreign power that's willing to just flatten us. Um, so it, you sent over a, a pretty lengthy list of different tactics, ideas, things like that. And I thought that it'd be a really good resource to the libertarian or anarchist community so that basically we can we can argue our point better because uh, that's going to be a common uh, retort is that, you know, if you get rid of the federal government, if you get rid of the army, navy, everything else, uh, get rid of the nukes. How do you defend yourself? And I think it's it's a fair question. It's one that people deserve to have answered. So I thought I'd have you on to talk about that. So you can start off wherever you like. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I I think I would be remiss if I didn't start by kind of attributing some of the places. Like I'm I'm sort of parroting and and hopefully doing a decent job and also combining a few different sources. So that, like I would almost suggest to people like as soon as this is over run over to bob murphy's chaos theory there you go and um where he runs through a lot of this and also um or he does some shorter talks on private defense mm -hmm. and um and then i sort of if you combine that with you ever listen to like um prof cj um dangerous history podcast he talks about the revolutionary war so some of the ideas i'm taking are about how the militia was stronger Mm -hmm. than the Continental Army in a variety of ways. So like, I just want to say that I, a lot, and then um, a lot of the technical information, if you're curious, how would this country or that country match up? I get from a YouTube channel called like Binkov's Battleground, where he really seems to know his stuff. I don't know who that guy is, <laughs> but he knows like in-depth details about stuff that even I, as like a nerd into the subject area, don't know. And he integrates it really well. Very cool. So that said, like laying it out the first thing when you end up in a like this and it's really hard because somebody's oh people are always going to just ex automatically be skeptical of the idea that we could be better off or any country any place could be better off dumping their government and relying on their militia and private defense rather than a statist military to defend them mm -hmm. you know and when people encounter that they immediately just like they imagine worst case scenarios and they're they're and we're sort of constrained by a little bit of logic and reason and they're willing to just imagine the worst nazis combined with the soviet arm red <laughs> army stumbling onto ancapistan in right. the middle of the caucus plain or something or not caucus plain but the the eastern front you know what i mean and how could they ever defend themselves against the three biggest armies in the world it'd be impossible and well, first of all, that's just not realistic and fair because neither could Belgium, neither could any other country that was smaller in scale. And for that matter, neither could France defend themselves against Germany. Right. You know what I mean? And France actually was an overmatch to Germany at World War II. So 
like one of the things to try it, it's worth trying although unlikely because they're going to say well you still didn't answer my question but one of the things is try to get people comparing apples to apples and in your mind if you're skeptical and you're listening right now you know you have to compare a like size country and a like region and things like geography really matter in battle you know what i mean um there's going to be terrain makes a huge difference choke points and strategic locations and then another question is like what about the resources of your hypothetical location where are we are we imagining the entire united states as ancapistan or some enclave i i that we've carved out mm -hmm. you know what i mean because it's you're talking about so many different things and all those things matter so well where do you envision or, or where do you think would be most defensible well um i mean and this is an interesting subject like I, I do wonder about um there's sort of a if you find places some pla places that end up being wealthy don't necessarily like the ideal ancapistan when i imagine would be a place like singapore like you know there's or there's people like to point to examples of hong kong or singapore these places that have nothing but their human resource really and a location mm -hmm. you know singapore is very well placed on the uh, straits of malacca you know what i mean mm -hmm. um so i mean on, on the one hand you do imagine that you don't really need much except for maybe a good location to be a wildly successful free market area um city-state or whatever you want to, not even city-state but um on the other hand um you don't like it may so resources are important but then when it comes to conflict well where are your resources going to come from could you be cut off and those are so it could be a blessing or a curse like having certain resources being in certain locations i still would and there's certain areas that just aren't naturally defensible like you're not going to defend the middle of eastern europe flat plains mm -hmm. with no you know what i mean so i mean i have thought about this like what it would be the ideal place if we're going to you know if we're all going to move if there it becomes a stateless society what would be ideal um and i don't know i think really like you have to get there first you know what i mean and then okay. wherever you are i still think that kind of leads to the next question like and I don't know if this is fair or unfair, but uh, one thing that you could consider is a stateless society. We generally believe, if you're talking to another libertarian who's still skeptical about going all the way to a private defense is, we, would we be significantly wealthier? You know what I mean? Would being a free society generate such greater wealth that we, we would automatically be able to draw in resources to us just through our wealth, if in need? That's a great, you know I mean? that's a great counter argument. I, I hadn't even considered that. I mean, it's such to me and probably to you, it's such a given that we would be so much wealthier than pretty much any competing country. Um, if we were to actually see to fruition, all of the things that we aspire to, which would be no taxes and no, it just, it would obviously be a tremendously uh, benefited society economically. So yeah, that's that, that answers a lot of those questions. Yeah. And I think so ways to lead into that could sometimes be things like bringing up that um your freer markets are wealthier already and also you know if you consider even like little hong kong against china which is one of the scenarios that often gets brought up in these conversations um you know china is being is playing very carefully they are playing hong kong with kid gloves they're they're, they're managing a coup there 
but they are playing with kid gloves because they don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. All mm -hmm. the mo a lot of the money that flows into China flows through Hong Kong and they know it. Yep. And they don't want the people to flee, to give up on it, to, uh, for businesses to shut down and call it quits. And they don't want that. So if you imagine the stateless society, to some extent, if we're a free trading stateless society that's contributing a lot, you know, there's the Bastiat saying, I believe it's, uh, please don't tell me I'm wrong, but if it's Bast, I think it's Bastiat who says, you know, we're goods cross borders, armies don't, you know what I mean? I, um, I've, I've heard Ron Paul say it, but I'm sure it's Bastiat originally. Um, so if we are a free trading stateless society, another advantage we might have is even if we're not far wealthier, we probably are trading already. Like what reason would you have to attack us? And that's a fair thing to ask. And people are going to give you answers like, well, people are always going to be greedy. And, and you know, that may... That the common answer is resources, they always yeah, say. Yeah, resources. But yeah. a lot, like, it isn't necessarily a given that you'll have a lot of resources other than human resources. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, ultimately, humans are the greatest resource, especially during Adkapistan. I think it could work just as well in the middle of Iowa right. as it could. I mean, maybe better in, you know, really important strategic location, but... Those human resources are going to flee and you're going to destroy them through conquest or yeah. at least reduce their productivity. Like, and wow. this comes to one, are you talking to a statist or are you talking to a libertarian who's skeptical? Well, you can work on the, well, don't you believe that humans are better at producing when they're freer and able to choose and not being taxed and all those things that kind of loops back into the wealth discussion. Right. Well, um, the li libertarian would probably accept that pretty easily. How do you make yeah. the same argument to a statist? So, yeah, to a statist that, you know, that it might be a tougher road. They might not accept that. And so in that case, sometimes I might just say, well, let's argue on equal terms. We're not going to be wealthier. This state is not going to be any wealthier. We're going to just accept it as it is. Hong Kong as Hong Kong. You know what I mean? I still think I can win on the terms of having a more robust defense if it's not the standard military standing army. Okay. Um, and so I would just I wouldn't. I, I don't necessarily fight them on that one. One thing I do consider and I go back and forth on is, is sort of the life of luxury that we live in. I mean, it's hard for me to envision the boogaloo type situation. And, you know, it's hard for me to envision me, at, you know, in my mid thirties now and not really wanting to uh, not wanting to go through the sacrifices and hardships I went through when I was younger. Sure. Um, I have more to lose. So if you are a really wealthy society, on the one hand, you have a lot to lose that might make and everyone has their life to lose. But I often have thought about like, do the Afghans like is their ability to repel superpowers in part the fact that they have lived as subsistent farmers in mud huts for millennia and never changed their way of life. And so if you knock down their mud hut, they'll build a new one and they'll be fine. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a lot, um, lot easier to talk a poor man into fighting and dying in a, a stupid war than it is to, you know, talk someone who's living the life of luxury into fighting a dumb war. So, yeah, yeah. I, it's really that's a good question. What, what do you think? I, I, I that's a question I don't know the answer to, um, to be honest. But I, I do think um, even then you could enlist outside help. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily mean the aid of another state. Um, I mean, private defense companies. I mean, that. In addition to the possibility, I think the likelihood that without a military, the 
people join the military in part, like people like me, I didn't join, I joined because I was, you know, you could attribute a lot of it to propaganda. You could attribute it to part of my family's upbringing. Um, but people do have a page. I don't think there's anything wrong with patriotism, a love of your place and a love of, you know, as long as it's not blind or stupid obedience. But I, I think there is a natural desire in a lot of people to perform a duty to their their country to their place sure you know yeah. as I long as it doesn't as long as it doesn't bleed into xenophobia or or hatred of anyone that's not from your little plot of land i don't see yeah. anything wrong with it either sorry about that scott we had to uh clear up some storage had to delete some pirated uh, videos off my pc so <laughs> Hopefully now we won't uh, get interrupted. So where, where did we leave off? Do you remember? So we left off where I was sort of talking about how I still believe that people, even without a um, standing army, which sort of pulls in these types of people now, even without that, you would have people that are interested in, I mean, just think about teenage boys I, and, 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 or you would have people that are interested in contributing to the defense of their society. You know what I mean? I mean, how many people do you meet who said, I would have joined the Marine Corps, but, you know, there was some limitation or this, that, or the other. Sure. Um, so I don't think that would go away. I mean, that's what firefighters are. That's what all those people and, and you know, that's what all of those people are. So I don't think one thing is that I think if anything, without the military, you would have a more robust structure for picking out the best of those people and not sort of a largely status structure. You know what I mean? Not kind of serving as part social welfare state, you know? Yeah. Um, and in, in a related note, uh, just sort of, you know, there's a saying um, that, uh, that um, like great leaders, like people who want to win wars talk logistics, right? And mm -hmm. people and like, you know, amateurs talk tactics and like, and geniuses talk logistics. How do okay. we get the food and the beans, bullets and band-aids where they need to be? Well, and that's, um, if you've, uh, I know you've had a conversation with, uh, they had a great guest on biting the bullet once. Um, I cannot recall his handle at the moment. Um, they had a great guest who really was talking about how would, what would be the logistics of a militia in a defense, you know what I mean? Building those sort of agorist type structures where you can get if, if you're a militia, you could feed yourself, but it, you also relieve yourself of a lot of headaches. If you're a defensive, I mean, this is how guerrilla wars win, how militias win is they don't have the same logistical headaches. You sure. know what I mean? They yeah. don't have to ship. I mean, you would not, you, you would not even begin to believe the logistical tale to the troops in Afghanistan, the, the few thousand. It doesn't all fly in on a C-17. It goes on a ship to Karachi, gets trucked up through Pakistan, over the Khyber Pass. Some This is all in civilian contractors using trucks. Tens of, I mean, for the 5,000 you know, military that are in Afghanistan, there's another 10,000 um, third country nationals, what we call them, who are working to deliver the food and all of the other logistical train. And so that's, a, and part of that is done by the military as well. And that's just all this extra overhead you have when you have this giant standing army model that a right. private defense structure wouldn't have. They would just buy the things they need. Um, so, so one thought is, yeah, that the militia, the people who would want to serve their, area would still exist 
they would be interested in the in the militia they might be interested in joining a private defense force and i think by getting rid of the standing army you'd be better off because you could actually like it wouldn't also be you're joining to go to college or you're joining for the all these other things you're just trying to get a paycheck you're a careerist it would be a job on the free market that would choose the best of the best to do different tasks. Sure. And um, not, not just that, but with uh, an Kapistan model, it would be all the people like you and I that are moving there to embrace freedom. Like yeah. I, I, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm pretty patriotic. I I'm mm-hmm. definitely willing to defend myself. I'm armed to the teeth. I'm like, I am one of those guys that would be in and Kapistan or whatever we call it. And, uh, and be willing, yeah. be willing to sign up to defend my little home free dirt. Whereas I would never have considered joining the military because I realized that they are often wars of aggression in my experience always. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have a lot more people like that. And then also you're going to have all of these people that are moving to these, this area being the like-minded type freedom oriented people that oftentimes are very big pro 2a folks they're very well armed many of them train just for fun um Mm -hmm. so even if it's not like a a real deeply organized militia Mm -hmm. if it if it ever came down to a a real fight i feel like Mm -hmm. you get you get way more volunteers than you would in a war of aggression yeah and you would have that home field advantage you wouldn't need the intel structures you have now where we have a national geographic aerospatial industry that yeah charts every building on every corner of the globe you wouldn't have all that you would and well i think people honestly would and this is an interesting thought i mean they would think about defensive strategies for their own particular piece of terrain and i i suspect honestly people would build in defensive structures that might be a a bridge too far to reach but i think honestly people would kind of think if there really is a threat if there is an aggressive neighbor that that and kapistan really has to worry about Mm-hmm. that I think people would start being like, well, maybe we need to put a canal in. Like maybe it wouldn't hurt for that canal to have a little bit of a revetment or something like that. Just, just as a, you know, I think people would give thought to that. We already do. You know what I mean? People would kind of naturally think about those things. Especially, also, especially the people we're talking about that would move to a place like we're describing. So, yeah. And, um, and another thing that would exist in Ankapistan and I frankly abhor, um, the use of mines in our warfare as it exists now. Sure. But um, I do believe that there are, they, I mean, it is fair to say they are a low cost, high reward deterrent. Sure. You know what I mean? And in an Adkapistan situation, it very well might be that if there was a threatening neighbor and what would be very different uh, that people would emplace landmines or IEDs and people would have access to the materials necessary to produce um IEDs you know what I mean we don't have that institutional knowledge now in part it's you know border like ammonium nitrate is pretty tightly controlled and god knows how you get on a, a, your hands on a blasting cap I don't know <laughs> I mean maybe maybe if you have a friend in the mining industry or something but um but um those kinds of thing aside from a couple million tons sitting around in a harbor in Lebanon you know <laughs> for no apparent reason yeah <laughs> um but um, I think that there would be, it would be very easy to deny an area to just, you know, Hey, look, there really is a threat here. And in Kapistan, we would, there would, you wouldn't have the problem with landmines you have now where the plan is just to drop them from an airplane and scatter them to the winds. 
and then for another 50 years children are getting their legs blown off in cambodia right you know what i mean because it would be tactically planned i would hope yes and it would be strictly and there would be liability to go with that too so you wouldn't have the situation where we have completely forgotten in america what that every few days some cambodian kid loses a leg to one of our landmines yeah the cambodian war is one of the one of the more under talked about wars or conflicts or whatever you want to call it in our yeah, history. It's, it's atrocious. Yeah, it really is. And um but I think in an in a defensive situation they would be they would they would be extremely useful and they wouldn't be off the table and you could deny the enemy their easy avenues of approach. And related to that, and this is where um you know private I I don't know whose hands these would these would fall in exactly anyone who could afford them. But area access and area denial type weapons, your kind of more expensive weapon systems like basically ballistic missiles and cruise missiles would be a cheap, low cost option, especially if you have a coastal area to completely at this point, the technology is so advanced. Um, you could you could keep even America, the most aggressive hyperpower with 11 super carriers. At this point, China has effectively managed to, through just use of relatively inexpensive missiles and satellites, they're getting near the point where they can, with really cheap satellites, keep tabs on all of our carriers. The hard part of a car- of fighting a carrier is finding it in one part. And they could barrage, just barrage, saturate a carrier with enough missiles that are relatively cheap to get a hit. And now carriers have to stay so far away from their coast that they can't use their aircraft to attack China. Yeah. Effectively, effectively, the Navy has kind of accepted that strategic bombing and they need longer range fighters already. They're already working desperately to get something that can go more than a thousand miles because they have recognized that their carriers can't get close enough for their fighters to be effective. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's a relatively low cost strategy for defense. And, and that's a, relatively, ever, that's a relatively larger landmass than Appalachistan would be. So, well, it, it's true, but I mean, the miss, the, 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 I mean, China would, they have a lot of resources, but a few missiles, yeah, it would be easy to defend that area. Like, no, no threatening, if, if we have water around us, especially, no mm-hmm. threatening entities within a thousand miles or else, you know, right, right. if it really got to that point. Um, uh, let me play devil's advocate here. So, mm-hmm. assuming, I mean, since we're pretty much Second Amendment uh, true believers or absolutists, as you might call it, do you believe in allowing the citizenry to have nuclear weapons too? Uh, you know, I, 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 I would say yes. I would also say they are so wildly expensive and functionally useless right. um, in a certain sense. I mean, I but, could but imagine as a, deterrent, a world... Though? I, I could imagine they could be an effective deterrent. I'm not saying they don't have a deterrent, of, uh, deterrent effect on an enemy. Um, I still, I suspect, I don't know, the market would have to bear this out, that honestly, there would be way more, like, they require such a, ex, they're very expensive. Now, co- part of that could be the way the government runs the, the nuclear program. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're a huge line item in the budget to maintain and to design. Well, and, the, the only reason I ask is because that's that's the common uh, retort mm-hmm. is that, you know, you're going to have all these nuclear powers around the globe mm-hmm. and then you have this little patch of dirt that's free and mm-hmm. you're not going to have nukes. They all have nukes. The only reason they don't kill each other is because of nukes, 
quote unquote. Um, I don't, I don't buy that, but that would be the argument. So I'm just yeah. devil's advocate. And, 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 yeah. And what I was like, what are they going to do? Nuke us. And then what are they going to do with the, like, again, that goes to like the goose that laid the golden egg scenario. Like, sure. They could nuke us and prove that app can, uh, you know, and it, it might be so threatening to their model. I wouldn't discount that. It might be so threatening to their model that an anarchic space succeeds that they gin up a reason to just justify destroying it. I wouldn't put that past statists. It's it's possible. I mean, if you look at Hong Kong, it's a fairly good example as to what you're arguing on both sides, where it's like, yes, it is a benefit to them financially, but also, yes, it is a huge threat to them because, you know, so close to their people and speaking the same language and everything else, it is a it's a bastion of hope to some otherwise hopeless people. So it's, it's not without its own risks. So uh, you have to... You have to hope that the state won't be so uh, overzealous in its defense that it will, you know, destroy any even signs of freedom outside of it. Yeah, I, and that's it's a valid concern. Um, like, but I still think that there it's not anywhere. I suspect on, like, say, China's playbook to nuke it to prove a point. You know I what think, I mean? I think that's <laughs> they I think that's a fair assessment. Yes, <laughs> they wouldn't be proving a, the point they think they were at that. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and that, that was actually what I said to someone. I, I got I don't do this argument as often as you do, but I, I got into it with someone, and uh, and that was my that was my reply. I was like, I was like, do you think that the rest of the world would view you know America or whoever it was that nuked this otherwise peaceful little patch of free dirt into you know oblivion? <laughs> Do you think the rest of the world then would treat them well, or would that make them the en enemy of the rest of the rest of the world? And they had to reply that, yeah, that would probably make them the enemy. It doesn't mean they won't do it. And I'm like, okay, well, if if you can't say that they, I mean, yes, they may do it. I, I, mm -hmm. Granted, anyone can fire a nuke at any time that has them. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's our reality, unfortunately, until we yeah. denuclearize the world, um, weapon wise. I'm a huge mm -hmm. energy nuclear guy, yeah, but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just an ultimate reality. As long as that technology exists, it's very similar to like a, a meteor hitting the Earth. I, I just I don't think it's it's a moral argument to continue down the path of having a large state with a military defense. Personally, yeah, absolutely. And I I, I think that actually kind of I'm going to skip over something but come back around to it. Um, sure. So that does bring when we're talking about so how does China really approach Hong Kong or Taiwan? Are they really trying? They're not really trying to invade and take over. They're trying to achieve a coup. They're trying to ensure that the government of Hong Kong is compliant and make sure that they're trying to change the laws ever so subtly. And one threat that you would not face in Ancapistan is capture of the government, which is what we prefer to. When we, when we invade Haiti and take it over in 1915, when we invade a country, when we invade Iraq or Afghanistan, we don't get... We, we don't get rid of every, the entire structure of their government and start from scratch. Even, even in Iraq, it is true we debathified, and but we didn't get rid of the structure. We kept their ministry of oil, and we put a new person that we liked in charge of it. And at a certain level of bureaucrat, we said, you know what? You can keep your job. You know what I mean? <laughs> Got to keep um, the power structures in place. Yeah, you, they, they want to capture the power structures. It's easier. It's more legitimate. The people are familiar with it. They're going to that that's how government even when you invade and topple a country whether it's the germans taking over france they didn't hire new german policemen they they had they the most of the french policemen just complied and went along to get along they replaced the a few french yeah then when <laughs> they you know they went along they replaced a few who's uh you know what's that movie casablanca you know what i mean they uh 
Um, I'm terrible because I can't remember the name of the character, but you know who I'm talking about. The cop, yeah. the Vichy yeah, 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 cop, yeah. you know, who kind of tried to, he was, he ended up being all right, but, you know, mostly he was kind of trying to just do his job and get by. Um, and yeah. that's what you have. So if you get rid of that, anar- if you have anarchy, you don't have the worry about the coup in the first place. They're not going to be able to just kind of, you know, top the way we do to every country in Eastern Europe, just kind of fiddle with the election a little bit and get it to turn our way or right. protest until the regime kind of folds. Well, and they can't even invade and topple our, our, you know, our. Exactly. And like, even like if they do invade, they can't. Yeah. They, even if they invade, they can't just be like, okay, well, we're going to replace all the ministers of these go- departments with our guys, but the, everything else stays the same. That structure just disappears. It evaporates. Yeah. It's not an option for them anymore. It right. makes it that much more costly, expensive and complicated to take over Ankapistan. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, so that in itself is a deterrent. Um, uh, so that just kind of brings us to like, why would you invade an anarchic space in the first place? Like kind of what we were talking about. There, like there wouldn't be any benefit to it. Like you would damage the productivity of the space. You would harm your own trade because you're probably benefiting from it in some way. Um, like human resources would leave there may be actual material resources but honestly it's easier to acquire material resources from a market economy that's producing them cheaply and willing to sell them to you yep. you know what i mean uh, the you would you would be it would be easier to buy them than to invade and it and that brings so the the last kind of thought about this is like private security firms exist they're in the real world now the dod uses them our military bases aren't guarded by military members. The gate at any military base, it's a contractor. Right. At the and, gate, and most of them are retired military, right? Some, some not all. No, wait, some are like prior military. Yeah, some, but not all. Um, oh, that's interesting. I, I always just assumed it was a straight pipeline of like, you know, Navy SEALs uh, it, or whatever. It, it can be. Um, I mean, I definitely have some friends who like, you know, they got a job as a contractor, but from being in the military but even if you go to say even if you go to afghanistan to a war zone the the walls of the of the base i was of of leatherneck or what the hell was the other name camp bastion um were defended by a contractor there weren't any there were marines who went around and made sure the contractors were awake and doing their jobs it was like one marine supervising somebody from DynCorp. wow you know what i mean um so even even like in Afghanistan, the walls of our bases are defended by contractors, private military. Mm-hmm. So if our military relies on them to do those tasks, then it's perfectly why cut just cut out the middleman. Why do we need the Marines supervising? And when you can just say in certain situations, hire the contractors because they hire guys from Uganda. And this goes to cost and this goes to some other things, talking about people who have hard lives and whether they'd be better at defending a country, mm-hmm. you know. Again, we were like, ask any Marine, like, how do you say hello in Ugandan? And they'll all say, Jumbo! Because <laughs> they all know that the gate guards at, and the interior security of the base that are pro- protecting against infiltration, in part because you can't trust a Marine to not let his buddy go by or something like that. It's some Ugandan dude <laughs> who does all the security on the bases. Wow. Um, and... So, and that goes for like in Saudi Arabia, DynCorp runs the bases and all the logistics are provided by KBR. So all of that is already provided privately. Yeah. So we already have, we already have kind of the infrastructure to go private with defense, but what, 
the obvious devil's advocate argument is that you get a, an Amazon of defense that then becomes predatory in nature. What what is your counter to that? Um, so, I mean, I think natural like I think you would still you would have the militia always competing. Okay. Uh, um, you and I. I when you say Amazon, I, I see what you mean, but I, I think overall Amazon has achieved making something incredibly cheap, readily available, and instantaneous when needed. Yeah, you know no, what I mean. I, I only mean it in the negative context of kind of being pushing all competitors out of the way. I mean, they, it, as as beneficial as it has been to the consumer, it mm. has been equally detrimental to the mom and pops out there that are trying to do small goods stores. So I, I just see it as. I'm using it as the argument for from the yeah. status perspective. And this was a well. This was actually like honestly. Um, I it, it I look back on this kind of fondly. It was when Tom Woods just started his podcast, and I really just I was still working on becoming an ANCAP. Like I everything, all the ducks were in a row. And this one, he wasn't. You know, he had just started up his podcast, and he actually answered. He didn't have a private Facebook page yet. And I sent him a message, and I was like, I still can't get over the hump of private security, like private police how would they not become their own um, mafia effectively? Right. You know what I mean? Run a protection racket. And like the one thought is just, well, for starters, then you're kind of just back at square one. But, but, um, but even, even then, I mean, you're kind of just back where you started, but even then Amazon's predatory, they're not forever. Yeah. The government is forever. Amazon will fold and be replaced. I mean, yes, they're like, there's, yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, they're getting favors. Like I think I sus so I suspect they couldn't even be as big as they are today without, you know, much government largesse. So yeah, it, I, yeah. I realize, I realize that it's unlikely to have a monopolistic uh, defense mm -hmm. force in mm -hmm. an Ancapistan type area. Uh -huh. However, that, that will be people's fears. So I'm just trying yeah. to assuage that and without, that's, that's without a lengthy explanation that loses them. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and that that's absolutely reasonable to be concerned about it. It's uh, it was my primary concern. What I would say is just that in general, your 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 militia would still exist, so there would be people who would resist that. You mm -hmm. could refuse to pay, you know what I mean. However, that is, and there would be like there could very easily be competitors who move into the territory. Yeah, you I know? think there um, there would almost certainly be as long as you don't have government contracts that are you know, trillions of dollars, I don't see how it, how it could be monopolized, honestly, like it would, it would almost by its very nature be competitive. I mean, certainly if the, if the landmass was small enough, you might end up having one company that dominates, but if it's a reasonably sized territory, you're going to have different companies on maybe different coasts or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, well, and, and I don't suspect on, and, and oh, this, the other argument that's useful for this is to consider that really your private defense corporations are not going to be a standing army. That's incredibly expensive sure. and not cost effective. They're not going to maintain a billion ma a, a mouse to feed to police every corner and run a monopoly. Yeah, definitely. They are going to probably be a, generally be very agile, focused on like low cost, high reward um, kinds of resources. Um, and a guerrilla force. More yeah. Or less capable of you know meeting you would be hiring them or companies would be hiring them for specific narrow needs we need some surface to air missiles because there's a threat to us from some enemy we need somebody who can 
fire missiles. You're not going to be, they're not going to be bringing, and they wouldn't want to just, even if they did come up with, it just, it seems wildly impractical to come up with any scenario where they just hire an entire private army to take over a space and somehow earn a reward from that. Like the cost versus benefit wouldn't make any sense. Yes. And really far fetched to imagine that they can run this perfect monopoly where they dominate and coerce people again and turn into a government. Yeah, you and, know? I, and I don't mean to to hammer Amazon. It's just the example <laughs> that's good to use. But yeah. say say you have a Jeff Bezos that rises up, becomes extremely successful, even though he doesn't have a have a monopoly, and he's not even in the defense industry. But he mm-hmm. he becomes financially successful enough that if he opts to become predatory and hire for nefarious purposes, do you just envision it being counterbalanced by the other freedom loving, armed to the teeth people? Yeah, yeah. To, I, I, I. First of all, think that when you, the problem monopolies have is when they become up, they they run into almost a central planners type problem where they're not able to effectively compete and do cost benefits. So they're going to start faltering on their own and making losses, and even eventually, your private monopoly, military monopoly, is going to be cost ineffective. Sure. You know what I mean. And then beyond that, what would make it cost ineffective is we have an army of liberty loving people who would if that really became problematic would make it really cost ineffective really fast and they would almost target they would almost certainly target him specifically which is a huge deterrent yeah exactly so so it wouldn't really be worth it and so that kind of i think covers a lot of the major bases as far as like how would private defense really work at some of the kind of objections um and then one other sort of thought is what also is likely to happen and there's some risks with let's say private defense they could be bought off but also and likewise we could buy off and and Kapistan might find that the most effective way to deal with a threat is to buy them off or to buy off the individual soldiers so status country x sends their soldiers to invade we're living in Ancapistan, right and we say hey Anyone who drops their arms right now, we'll give you a paycheck. Attend, we'll, we'll match your, we'll match your paycheck. We won't kill you. Welcome <laughs> aboard. Welcome to Afghanistan. Right. Just, just leave your army. Yeah, take and, off your and, uniform. And they're and come undoubted, home. They're undoubtedly fleeing a less free area, so that would be appealing as long as they could get their family out. Yeah. I, I, so I mean, there, there, there's, I mean, and that's something we are like militaries already do. I mean, we you constantly. I mean, one of the first things you do before you invade a place is drop leaflets everywhere, saying "Just surrender; it'll be easier on you." Sure. You know what I mean? So we would uh, do that to the invading force. Like oh yeah, it. absolutely. If yeah. and Pakistan would absolutely ju- just incentivize it, and it would be it, they would drop checks. You can cash this check at the you know first bank of Pakistan. <laughs> All you got to do is drop your arms. You know. Um, instead of just a leaflet saying we won't we'll, we won't kill you, which is and we'll treat you well and give you food, that's effective enough against an army like Saddam's or right. you know. But if we're uh, offering Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, soldiers actual freedom, it would be a real compelling uh, leaflet to read. Yeah. Um, so that kind of just you know, that kind of leads me to like the you know the the what about Russia thing that a lot of people get, um, and we sort of touched on nukes already, but. Um, that's one of the common things is what about Russia? What about our allies? What about this and that? And Russia is definitely at least a decade or two technologically already. Um, so that's just a decade worth or two noting. What? Like um, with their aircraft, their aircraft, all of their diff- various different technologies for, you know, 
radar, I, stealth I, technology, I fighter. The, I missed the descriptive word there. They're a decade or two uh, out of date, or what, what were you saying? Yeah, just behind behind oh, okay. where gotcha. we are now. Gotcha. So it's reasonable, and and really, they if you look at their military budget, it varies from year to year as their oil spoils go up and down. But their their budget is somewhere between Italy's and Germany's at any given time for their military. Between so when people will bring up like, well, are we abandoning them? It's well, no. I mean, we might. It very well might be that Encapistan is actually a great place for mercenaries to set up their home base corporation. And when Europe gets in trouble, you know, if if Europe were threatened, well, they could hire mercenaries too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so people always are concerned. About, this just, these are all, this is almost a just ridiculous argument. Like people ask about, well, uh, what if Russia invades the United States? Well, that's impossible. They don't even have a navy. They have they have some submarines. Their carrier burned, and then the dry dock to repair it in burned. They have nothing left of their surface fleet. They're never invading the continental United States. So if you're worried about them attacking the continental United States, if somebody's worried about that, they're they they just they don't just, they don't know what's actually just, up with Russia. Yeah, they they don't even know. You know I think, what I mean? I think the uh, honestly, as far as I'm aware, like the only real threats invasion wise on the globe at this point are China and America. Am I wrong? Um, yeah, more or less. I mean, China even they're they're really so that. Yeah, they're really only uh, China is growing. You know, they're clearly getting wealthier. They are prioritizing resources, mainly like they're concerned about access to oil, which I think, you know, and they want they want to be able to try to tap into oil that or natural gas they think is in the South China sea. Right. Um, mostly and, on, and they're, unpopul- they're also, they're also making aircraft carriers. Are they not? Uh, they are. So that, that's one of the other interesting ones. So their first aircraft carrier, what, so Russia was built near the, at the collapse of the Soviet union, Russia was building its second aircraft carrier. They have one right now that burned and sank and is sitting in its dry dock, which also sank. So it's just an unrepairable wreck. Jesus right? Christ. I didn't know um, that. Yeah. It, well, so they sent it to Syria. They tried to send it to Syria. The other thing about, well, one thing at a time. Um, they tried to send it to Syria. It took a, a few months to get there. It has to be followed by a tugboat everywhere it goes because it breaks <laughs> down constantly. Um, yeah. I'm not smokes, really afraid of Russia if I'm being honest. Yeah. yeah it smokes like you can see it for miles. It, pictures of it when it's underway are absurd. It looks like. It looks like a car burning oil. You know what I mean? Just a cloud behind it. I think um, I, I have to assume, given your you know, depth of knowledge about Russia's uh, military capacity, you probably had a similar feeling I did with the whole Russiagate topic, like <laughs> where you're just like, what the fuck are we talking about? Like, why are we even pretending that Russia is this huge threat to us? It's really bizarre to me. It's amazing. It's really incredible. I, I can't I, it defies imagine like when I don't understand. I can't even talk to these people. You know, I know what I mean? me either. I can't either. Um, I just, I just block they're, they're living <laughs> in a 1980s movie, uh, you know, but they run the our Russian... fucking country, dude. It's like, it's like <laughs> real high power people that are still living their nightmare from 35 years ago. It, it's I, bizarre. I tend to think they don't. Well, okay. So two thoughts on that. Um, one thing that does happen, and I'm fully aware of this and you can listen to like Danny Sturgeon and he'll talk about this. They've moved forward on this a little bit. I, I still remember very profoundly, I was flying um, from Haiti, stopped in Jacksonville, Florida on my way home after like the earthquake there. And I met, and, and in Jacksonville, Florida, 
there's a submarine hunter base. It's where they train pilots for our sub hunting aircraft. The thing is now called it. They've modernized. They replaced it with a 737, but it's called a P3. And I, I asked him like kind of why the base was there. I was just BSing with the guy on the flight home. And he was like, well, a few miles north of here in Kings Bay, Georgia, right across the Florida, Georgia border is where the nuclear missile submarines are. And a few miles off the coast at all times, there's a Russian nuclear sub sitting there waiting for one of our nuclear missile subs to come out. And we play constantly a little game of cat and mouse ever since the end forever, where we try to make sure that we can kind of sneak past them. We try to keep tabs on where theirs is. And this has been going on for 70 years now. And it's just, but the reason I, the reason and we do the same thing we have we send every month you know, we we rotate in and out we send a hunter hunter killer sub to the coast of murmansk and sit there and wait for one of their nuclear missile subs to come out we just wait by the gate and wait for it to come out right in international water so we can follow it everywhere and that's what they do and the reason they do it when i asked him is well really the only like it's the only thing our subs are des- our aircraft are designed to do how else do we practice we can only practice against these things so that's how you do it you stop yeah Yeah. and never occurred to anybody just stop doing it (laughs) you know what i mean stupid man they just keep and what i what i'm sort of talking about is there's this built-in institutional knowledge like what do the the generals who live today what did they learn in college they learned how to fight the roskies on the eastern front and that's all they know it's all they really want to do it's what they like it's their little fever dream since they were we lads you know and can't can't teach an old dog new tricks either and so that is a part of it but it's not really i don't think they're genuinely afraid i to some extent i think the politicians are just being cynical and use you know using fear from a stupid populace who will listen to anything they're told sure but but also i think that it's just it's so widespread it's hard to believe that it's it's shocking it's you know like so uniform yeah yeah so so like so to get back to the China threat and related is the Chinese carrier, their their first carrier is the Russian second carrier that they never finished building. And oh, it I, sat, I didn't realize that. It sat in Ukraine for like since 1990 till about 2005. China bought it, but um, it wasn't it was only half finished. And they had to um, haul it. They couldn't get out of the. There was just this incredible rigmarole for them to get it. It had. To, it, they pulled it around in circles for about three years in the Black Sea because Turkey wouldn't let it go through. <laughs> um, it broke loose from its chains at one point in the middle of the Indian Ocean. They almost lost it. Wow. Um, and but then I, I've heard. I've heard that they're building a bunch of new ones, though. Is that well, not well, true? So the, the, yes, they are. Um, but they're all knockoffs of that. And what's worth oh, okay. noting, uh, they're all copies. They're improving their copies, but the second and the third one that's being built, the second is a copy of the Russian, the night, the thirty-year-old Russian one, and the third one is maybe a copy and improvement. But even then, the thing worth noting there that's is the, that's the entire nature of the Chinese economy. You just steal someone else's idea and then you slightly improve upon it. Yeah, exactly. And and the other thing too is they can't those. Those types of carriers, they don't have a steam catapult on them. They don't have a catapult that can launch a heavy aircraft. So oh, wow. they have they have a huge weight limit. And that's most carriers in the world. The only catapult-driven carriers are Americans, where we can launch 
uh, aircraft that's fully laden with fuel and bombs. So the only thing they can launch is um, half full fighter aircraft with missiles only. They can't really launch anything that can that can do anything other than shoot down other aircraft, which kind of makes them more of a defensive type weapon. They can't do much that else with sounds them. Sounds great to me. I, w- um, I wish I wish we had the same. Yeah. Um, they and in a related note, sort of it, there's a going back I th- it, to a certain extent. Carriers are becoming rapidly obsolete because if all it takes is a relatively inexpensive like upscale Scud. A couple hundred of those that are cheap. They just need a really good guidance system. And all they have to do is be able to fall straight down on the target. You know what I mean? A couple of, even our most advanced, so our most advanced systems, like our carriers are protected by about four destroyers that carry about 90 missiles each, a mixed bag of 90 missiles that are meant to shoot down any incoming threats. They can have these little vertical launch things that can't be reloaded uh, at sea. So they only have a limitation. And it takes about three missiles, three or four of the the defensive missiles to shoot down an incoming missile just to make sure you don't miss. So you can see very quickly that there there's an inherent limitation of about 200, 300, that a hundred incoming missiles would saturate the defense and there would be no stopping anything that comes after that because mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the American destroyers. And also there's this, and they don't carry all the kind of missiles that can shoot. There's, this is way too getting into the weeds, but there's different types of missiles. There's missiles for shooting down aircraft. There's missiles for shooting down other missiles. And there's also um, your anti-ship missiles and your Tomahawk missiles that we use to like, whenever we decide to blow up somebody in another country, Right. right. They all use the same launcher. So and they carry a mixed load. They don't carry all just the kind that can shoot down a ballistic missile that's coming in. Right. Point is to say carriers are rapidly becoming obsolete. Yeah. Um, it, there will Sounds be a good. time and place where they're just too big and too juicy of a target. They're too expensive. And every carrier, let's just say in a few years from now, when we if the F-35 ever works, um, each of those is one hundred million dollars themselves. And you're going to have 70 F-35s on a $2.4 billion carrier. And all you got to do is get one lucky hit, you know, and and you just took away a tenth of our Air Force and Navy with yep. one, you know. So they're so high cost and so low, re- and the reward is getting lower and lower. So that kind of – China is making these su- carriers that can carry fighters, but I don't know that they really are going to be that much of a real threat by the time they even get them really highly functional, which okay. is a few years away. They're still under construction of their actual upgrade model. And well, that's a comforting thought. I, I've always been concerned uh, if they take over the, you know, the mantle of defender of the world as America has been for the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, will they, will they take on a similar imperialist mindset where they're, you know, invading X, Y, and Z, trying to liberate the people or spread communism or whatever the fuck they they call it. Um, it sounds as if you don't think that that's likely. Uh, I think I mean, it's a possible scenario, but it would be it would they would have to do decades of navy building that right. are still a ways away. Uh, so you would be able to see that kind of thing coming. And again, the the ability to destroy a carrier is advancing more rapidly than the capability of carriers. Sure. So. 
So as long as that keeps up, then really, even if they were a threat, even a relatively poor country would be able to say, no, not your carrier is not coming anywhere near our coast. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that's kind of where I think that's going. Um, and the only other real kind of thing that people bring up all the time is like, what about, what about the Nazis killing the Jews or what about Rwanda kind of stuff? Like what would, if we didn't have our standing army to go and police the globe, you know what I mean? Yeah. What would would happen in those situations? That's like, and that's not really a private defense concern per se, because honestly, you know, the military is capable. I mean, my job as civil affairs, the reason I went to Haiti is when you have a, a Marine expeditionary unit. Um, I think Dave told you a little bit about this, but they have this whole logistical element. They could produce their own drinking water. They have tons of food. They have boats that can go from ship to shore and they can sustain themselves for about 30 days um, in any situation. You know what I mean? What that means is they could land on anywhere within a hundred miles of an ocean and deliver a ton of food and water anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool capability. And that's why you hear about Marines going to different disaster areas. Yeah. You know, and and it is true that not many private. Um, but even then, we were not the first ones there. When I landed in Haiti, there were already NGOs getting shipments of water production facilities that were going to stay there for the long haul. We well, were it, only staying for 30 days to this, get the PR. This is a good opportunity. Yeah. I, well, it is usually a PR move. And and it's also it's often viewed by libertarian-minded people as kind of a, a nefarious tactic to whatever uh, spread our influence or uh, you know you got the real conspiracy theorists that are like uh, you got you know the Bill Gates funded NGOs that are out there actually like just testing vaccines on people in Africa. Where, where do you fall in the spectrum of conspiracy theorists when it comes to NGOs? Are they are they truly uh, benevolent be- benevolent actors or what's your feeling um so i i do feel like ngos would have a place in the free market where people do want your um who's the fella who does the donor c there are people there are always people that want to help people in need um and, 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 and if they are genuinely helping, it's great. I, I'm not knocking it. I'm yeah. just I'm just trying to I, counter the, the the conspiracy theorists that might be listening. Yes. You know what I mean? But but that said, um, it is it is true that your NGOs out there, because I've worked hand in hand with a good number of them, um, they 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 are responsive to their donor. And the biggest donor out there is the U- is the Department of State and USAID. And they do work within, and they do sometimes, there's a great um, documentary, it's called, um, oh shoot, um, I'm sorry, I can't call it off the top of my head. Uh, um, there's a great, there's a there's some great literature and a great documentary out there, it'll come to me in a moment, but that goes over how foreign aid you know, the, the Western workers who go to run, I mean, I mean, I met some of these guys uh, and they were, they were nice enough people, but they lived, they were the richest people in the town in Haiti that they were helping. Right. And that wasn't a coincidence. Nobody's going to go, no one's going to go work there if they're not going to be paid a decent salary, but also they're, all, they're also enabling, often end up enabling corrupt regimes. Yes, you know what do. I mean? And the and- aid props up the crop, corrupt regime. Not just that, um, but, but it, it's well known that we often plant uh, our CIA operatives within NGOs so that they can have cover as they do whatever they plan to yeah. do. So and, that's, um, that's the and concern. That, and and for example, 
Um, I can virtually guarantee there was a, when there was a, there was an earthquake in Iran that they sent some civil affairs folks to and to help out. And Iran actually accepted the aid, but of course they were very skeptical because and they were because we don't go to so. those places just for good. We're collecting new maps. You know, when I was in, even in Haiti, which is a non-threat, um, this is kind of speaks to that institutional knowledge and just like if you're if you're a hammer, every job looks like a nail. I um, there are these guys. There's this job called human intelligence exploitation. Their whole job is to just get intelligence from people. You know what I mean? So where are the enemy kind of stuff? Asking people on the street, how do I find them? Developing sources. So when we land on the shore in Haiti, you know, there, instead of, I, you know, I sat there and I tried to talk to him. It's like, well, maybe you could help me since my job is figuring out where food and other things are needed and how to best help, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you could help me develop some sources and do that. And they're like, no, we're going to go try to find the pot farmers, keep tabs on the Chinese that are providing aid here. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and we also have to get some like uh, military data. We're not invading yeah. Haiti, Haiti anytime soon, but right. their, their automatic mindset is threat oriented. Yep. You know what I mean? And so they're going to collect data on that naturally. So yep. even if you were going aid, there with- Aid quickly becomes a reconnaissance mission. <laughs> yes, immediately. It's just because that's what you do, you know? Um, there, it's also like figuring out what beaches to land on is an important thing to the Marine Corps. So of course they're like- going around checking out every beach you know um maybe take spending a little bit of time there relaxing but also like doing a beach recon to make sure that it's a landing spot but um to help people in a humanitarian crisis like let's say there's a genocide happening because that's one of those other last probably worst case scenarios that i can think of that people name to us sure um there's a genocide happening somewhere what is your ancapistan going to do how is your military going to fight them you know, stop it. Well, first of all, if you really care that much, you can join up to go fight. You know what I mean? There are there are people that join the free Syrian army or wherever. You know, there. if you look at the Spanish volunteers against the fascists in Spain before World War II, yep. there are people that just bucked up and volunteered. But beyond there's a, that, there's Americans that joined the Taliban. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you know, but and beyond that, you could give money and say, hey, we want you to stop this genocide. There was um. A company called Executive Outcomes, where there was a war in Angola, a, a pretty nasty civil war. There was a private defense contractor. The country was collapsing. The, they, their military was not able to defend them. The government hired Executive Outcomes, the, mostly like former South African apartheid soldiers, but they didn't care for a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And they defeated the, they ended the civil war in a week. You know what I mean? Um, so, private militaries have always existed so that's one option but lastly as a peaceful society we would have our borders open we would not turn back the ship full of jews that are trying to escape nazi germany and we say ah, sorry no room at the end you got to go back right you know the best way there's a great book um it's by a woman named Lori calhoun um and she talks about just war theory and all of those things and she comes to the conclusion in spite of herself because i don't think she wanted to go there but she comes to the conclusion that the best thing you can do, honestly, is be neutral. You're in a peaceful be, society. Be neutral and open, yeah. Yeah, neutral and open. Because there's a reason that the um, a lot of your major NGOs or like your Red Cross and stuff like that are based in 
and uh, MedSense and Frontier, like uh, Doctors Without Borders, are based in Switzerland. It's because they will, and they will not be seen in the same room with a Marine. Like we would go and we would try to want to talk to them and find out how they're helping when we're in Haiti or when we're in Afghanistan. They won't talk to us because they maintain strict neutrality. They will not talk to an armed group, but that means that they can go anywhere in the world and help. That's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, um, I think that's the the hardest part about NGOs is that so often you don't know what their true motive is with mm -hmm. a a structure like the red cross, as you're describing it. That sounds like, true benevolence where you're just there you're not going to give any fucking intel to the enemy uh, it's just to help the poor sick starving dying people yeah. and that's yeah that's and that's beautiful. enabled by maintaining neutrality so that's one more reason and so not only could you provide aid better but also you could open up those humanitarian quarters you could get people out of the genocide if there's something like that that's your that's your last reason you can't accept and capistan then you know think about how much more good you could do being neutral and being able to access the people and help them escape. Cause yeah, I, I, there's plenty of reason to believe that that's actually the best way is to get people out and be neutral and be able to negotiate and provide medical care rather and that, than. And that argument really only stands if we are by some miracle turning the United States of America into an, an, an because otherwise you still have the, uh, alleged freedom freedom fighting forces of the world that'll go and stop genocide so we don't actually have to participate if you still believe that they're really doing that out of the goodness of their heart yeah and that's one of the things too that arguably almost every case where let's say you're america fighting for freedom to help these people almost every time the death count goes up not down more chaos is sown it's there's worse it's worse after than before yeah well and, and it's partly because we're never going over there to help them escape we're trying to topple their government and you know mm-hmm. benefit from it in our own nefarious ways whereas you know it, the the examples that people are bringing up to you most often would be genocides like in world war ii where mm-hmm. if if the american government had just gone over to germany and you know tried to exfiltrate i guess is the term all mm-hmm. of the uh, enslaved people and mm-hmm. and offered them homes here that'd be a totally different thing than what we actually did which was you know destroy them essentially so it's yeah. it's an interesting argument but uh great great info sorry i'll let you keep going if you got more no that's uh i i think i've run out of thoughts um <laughs> at the for the moment as for, at least as far as how private defense might work and uh, and all the counter arguments that people bring up um is I there anything gnawing at you with them that like that you just like i can't get over it or you think somebody else wouldn't be able to um I mean, I guess the the hardest part for me to envision is how we get from here to there. You know, it's like, like I think that the the concept itself, you've thought out really in depth and in mm-hmm. detail, and I think that it's really compelling. Honestly, um, mm-hmm. I just don't see how we get that plot of land that we can then start this process. Well, so I, yeah, so the one thing I, this actually my my personal hobby horse that I wouldn't if you'll let me plug one thing um, sure, would be um, and it's a small step, but I think it's a realistic step would be um, we need to demilitarize the United States first. I think we need to move towards cutting down the standing army. I know this is far fetched. I know that the, the, um, the chances are slim, but of uh, getting a, a libertarian president who's going to, you know, put every, every one in DOD on furlough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that'd be nice to see, 
but a concrete step that I think is plausible um, is what's called the Defend the Guard Act. Um, it's pushed by a group called Bring Our Troops Home. They're more of a conservative um, war skeptic group, not quite peace group. But um, they you, work. Do you with, have an they, affiliation with them? Um, not nothing formal. Um, okay. But they um, they've worked with Tenth Amendment Center um, to come up with draft legislation to basically say that National Guard units cannot be sent to war without a declaration of war. And this would be a state level bill because we know you can't really work through Congress. But there's a chance that some states might be able to be swung to pass this bill. It would have to go. It would probably end up in the Supreme Court at some point. Um, it's not. And, and it's also possible that the Congress, rather than declare war, would try to punish a state by taking away their National Guard. But either way, it would kind of force it would force the issue um, and. It's one small kind of concrete step if we can organize libertarians, but also progressives um, like, you know, folks. yeah, get anyone anti-war to think just this small step. But it's not as small as you think, because um, DOD relies on the National Guard still. There's about 30,000 National Guardsmen deployed. They have. Like it's guard units in Saudi Arabia. There's guard unit in Syria. There's guard units in Afghanistan right now. In fact, there's an the Oregon National Guard. They're um, the helicopters they would normally use for fighting wildfires are in Afghanistan right now. Wow. Um, so, so they can deploy the National Guard to foreign countries without a declaration of war right now. Is what you're saying? Oh, they've been doing it the whole time. Is that constitutional to begin with? Uh, I mean, it depends how much, you know, how Spooner you want to, you know. <laughs> true, true. I'm sure Spooner would, would find it completely ridiculous, but I'm just um, curious, like, what your take is. Yeah, oh. no, so there was a there was a Supreme Court challenge um, sort of related to this. It was uh, the state of Michigan. Um, during the 80s, uh, the National Guard was being sent to Nicaragua to sort of do logistics for our, like, semi-genocidal war in Nicaragua yeah and um Sandinistas I guess yes and the um governor of Michigan tried to object um and he brought it up to the Supreme Court and they lost but there was no combat element there they were being sent for training only Mm -hmm. is what they said they were building roads and delivering supplies and it was all a training exercise and then whatever and it was all in and it was all like it was in else. They weren't in Nicaragua where the war was. They were in the adjacent country, bringing everything to the border and leaving it there. So that didn't count. That was only training is the way the Supreme Court looked at it. They weren't being sent into combat. They were also There's never been. They were, they were also delivering cocaine to Texas and Arkansas. But, but we won't <laughs> talk the, about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so there's never been no state has ever really challenged whether there were whether the National Guard can be used in all of the. Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, or Libya, uh, Somalia type wars. I had no so, idea. That's horrifying. Yeah, they, they're used, uh, like I said, and also they're just used to defend, like it was a National Guard unit that was sent to Saudi Arabia when Saudi Arabia, like their oil fields got hit by some uh, Houthi drone, Yemeni drones. And, um, and we sent a National Guard unit with Missile Defense National Guard unit to help protect the oil fields there. 
So, you so know? boil boil this down for a novice. What does what benefit does that provide to heading towards Ancapistan to not have the National Guard deployed? Well, what it does um, to us as libertarians is it gets us out of the wars. It 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 will throw a lot of sand in the gears because like. Of the 11 A-10, the attack aircraft that everyone loves, um, of the 11 or 12 A-10 squadrons, about five of them are National Guard units. Interesting. Right? So, so you're saying that essentially not having the National Guard would cripple our invasion Warfighting forces? ability. Yeah. Yes. Wow. It would cripple that's, our warfighting ability. That's amazing. Um, it, or at least make it much more difficult for them to do. It would all of a sudden have to change. They would have to upscale. They'd have to take units. It would make a lot of headaches for them. Um, and they also would know that they can't rely on them for just wars of choice as readily. They'd have to at least get Congress to force to vote for the war of choice first, which is still possible, but it throws some sand in those gears. And what, um, what's the what's the terminology for this? Just so I can. Look it's for... Defend the Guard Act. Defend the Guard. So All right. DefendtheGuard.us um, is their website. Um, and that's, that's like I said, really, that's a really compelling argument, man. I, I've never heard any baby step towards ending the wars like that the states could actually take into their own hands. That's beautiful. Yeah. So I think like you're, and I, I think in your supermajority Democrat states, it, I tried it in, well, okay. So I thought, in your supermajority Democrat states like Maryland, this is where my Twitter handle was originally created just to try to get my local state delegates to buy this. Awesome. They didn't bite. Um, so <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not surprised if I'm being honest, but I, I don't know if I didn't have enough clout, but I was really trying to sell it. I was trying to pretend I was sort of a like Democrat. I didn't say anything about libertarianism <laughs> and, and I just like was anti-war, anti-war, anti-war. And I really tried to build a little bit of clout and, um, and get them to listen to me. And I got some responses from them, but they were all, well, that's just interesting. So I don't know what really held them back, but I really tried to sell it as like, well, you could like Trump's talking about bringing the tropes home. You can actually act up and do it. Like you can snatch, you can snatch his, you could steal his media cycle. I really tried to sell it. They didn't bite. I don't know that it will sell anywhere, but it's I think a, it's, it's worth a, a tremendous, try. It's a tremendous argument that I think the problem that you'll run into is that politicians on the left and right but you know, you wouldn't expect necessarily on the left. Yes, they also are, you know, benefactors of the military-industrial complex. I, I anticipated so. that to to the extent that, like, well, yes, of course, at Congress at the national level where they're doing defense allocations for sure. They I didn't are. anticipate it at the state legislator level where they're working for about a month or two a year, right. and and they're not doing defense allocation at so, all. I didn't so think that think... the defense contracts would be bribing them so much. So I thought, yeah. do you do you think they are? Because I, I, I'm not saying that necessarily that at the state level they are, because it, it it could just be you know bureaucratic and a new concept and it's just hard I, to teach someone I, something new i think that's part of it um i would say that um the 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 original person who came up with this idea is a fellow named pat mcgeehan um he's friendly he's been on uh, some libertarian podcast before that's where i first heard of this um uh he runs as a republican in west virginia and he almost got the bill passed in west virginia wow and then the pentagon sent um a few generals to the um, president of the Senate and the governor's office and said, if you pass this bill, we're closing every base in West Virginia. See, there you go. That's how they, that's how they, um, but I would argue that there are places where this could be more effective. There are 
California, let's say, is such a huge state with so many military bases. They can't shut. The, they, they could threaten and hem and haw all they want and not. Sh- they couldn't afford to shut down all the military bases in California. It would Here in Maryland break the economy in California. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Maryland, they could like they can't shut down the what are they going to do? Shut down the NSA? Yeah, no. <laughs> the I NSA wish. is here. Like I fucking wish, man. <laughs> yeah, like, go ahead. Go ahead and make my day. Punish <laughs> Maryland for ending the wars by shutting down the NSA. Yeah. Cry I'll cry myself <laughs> to sleep. You know? That would be um, glorious. Yeah. They can't shut down Fort Meade. They can't shut down Andrews Air Force Base where the pre- where Air Force 1 flies out of. They can't most of the, like there are states that are more immune to that threat. Okay. You know, either are there, by virtue are there of being, any are there any states that don't have military bases? That's probably, oh no, no, there's not. Wow, no, that's, that's that, fucking crazy, man. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I mean, they they, they got to put it everywhere. They got to spread. Uh, congressman, that, that, it's a huge deal when a, the BRAC system, the base realignment and closure, is a huge political deal. They every congressman wants that all oh, the all the money raining down on these random bases in places yeah no i i and i knew that i knew that they would have you know like anytime they talk about uh what's it called fiscal the mm-hmm. other thing the mm-hmm. i don't know whatever the word is um uh, but they'll, they'll start talking about like oh we gotta you know cut the budget here so we're gonna shut down this base and then it's just like huge uproar in that state and the congressman that presides over that area or the handful of congressmen that do they will do anything in their power because they know it's the end of their term if they don't keep that base yeah. open so it's so like that's where i'm saying like you've got to call their bluff like the, the and, and it would the challenge is you like i i can't predict all the outcomes but you have these state legislators you got to find an ambitious state legislator that wants to push the bill forward who isn't afraid of whoever the leadership in the house is so by state so, legislator do you what, at what level would we need an, an ally would it be a governor or would it be a I mean, an, a governor would be great. The lieutenant governor of Idaho actually signed on, um, oh. believe it or not. Idaho oh. is one of the most friendly states towards it. Idaho um, is badass. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you would need like your local state senator uh, or local state delegate, um, somebody okay. to put the bill into your state house. And um, usually, the, you know, those are going to come up in January is where most state houses open up, like in Maryland. So you'd want to get start getting in their ear right after the elections okay. um, and start kind of asking them if they would look at this bill. There's different ways you could sell it. If you're if you're if they're a Republican, you can sell it as like if they're kind of Trumpy, you could sell it as like Trump wants to bring the troops home. You know, this is one way to do it. But the, deep, the deep state won't let him. Let's help Trump yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. So let's help Trump out. You know what I mean? And then yeah. that's how bring our troops home is approaching it. They're, they're like the conservative anti-war group that sort of popularize this a little bit um and then you have like on a democrat side you say well what about all these wildfires you know what i mean like if you're in california oregon or washington like how would you like it if your national guard firefighting unit is in afghanistan because that happened and if you pass this bill you would you would not have the fires in oregon you have right now well that's that's Um, a great argument that would you also pitch it as the anti-war thing and then you look at the fact that like ultimately so if the state managed to pass this bill um the threat or was about to pass this bill, the threat would come down from the Pentagon that they'll get Congress to, sh- to take away their bases. And that's where it kind of becomes a blind man's bluff where you got to be like, okay, go ahead and make my day. You know what I mean? Like I dare you congressmen 
to vote to remove the bases from this state and then try to get reelected. Right. You know what I mean? Man, that's that's a fucking hell of a game of chicken, but I love it. Um, that I've never been. I, I've always been interested in in uh, national level politics personally mm-hmm. because I feel like that's where shit actually gets done. I'm uh, guilty of the same. Yeah, but during the lockdown, I started to realize how much more power governors have. Obviously, as we all learned, uh, apparently they can do whatever the fuck they want, and <laughs> and only maybe years down the road, the uh, Supreme Court might uh, tell you know slap some of their hands. But ultimately, it it didn't give any of our freedoms back in the meantime. Um, so that that's a really great platform. I'm I'm really glad that you brought that to my audience because I had no fucking clue about it, and it's really powerful i mean that for me and most libertarians i believe anti-war is the core of what we believe in and Mm -hmm. this is a state level tactic at which we might actually have a chance of getting in power to do you know and i i've never looked at being in state politics because it doesn't view it to from my novice vantage point it it provided no fuel to the anti-war fire and mm-hmm. this does so that's that's great to know yeah and for me like my fo- exact same thing I, I i i've been guilty of being always interested in national politics more even though uh i should be involved more locally you know mm-hmm. uh and then later on sort of it kind of just fed that fire even more when i became anti-war when i became a libertarian and realized these wars have to end and that's the real war is the health of the state we've got to take war away you know, another argument, just real quick, and I know every libertarian already knows this, but like every stupid, almost every stupid government program you can name, federal government program, whether it's prohibition, um, in you know, housing regulation, college regulation, was from the VA or some sort of pilot program for the war. It was oh. from World War One that they tested out prohibition. It was in World War Two that they they created a housing administration. It's always war that creates these different monsters that never die yeah um, nsa tsa yeah keep yeah. going. it's war that creates all these monsters that never die so we really as libertarians have to fight it because even if you only care about the domestic stuff it's always tested out under under war and in any case i was always like okay well i care about war so i need to worry about the presidency and i need to worry about congress you know what i mean but well the presidency isn't working you know Congress, no chance either, really. No. But then when I heard there was this state level approach, all of a sudden, like it's got me like going to my local Democrat fundraiser and being a pain in the ass. You know, <laughs> I love it. yeah. And, and that, um, I'm probably in a similar boat to you. Whereas, you know, I'm born and raised California. It's like I never got involved involved in state level politics because it's a fucking joke. Like yeah. I'm gonna be so outmanned it's like uh, why even try but uh, because i'm a libertarian and because i can appeal to them on their terms it, it out gives left us, the left yeah it gives you us know, common go ground, to them exactly. and out left the left on war so, and then see if you can get them to do it yep you yep. know makes a ton of sense yeah um well to me that's why the libertarians at our core there's two main tenets i mean obviously there's many others but the ending the federal reserve and ending the wars and the federal reserve takes out the financial fuel for wars and then ending the wars takes out the fuel from taking our freedoms. So mm-hmm. those those two topics, if I could, you know, if I could snap my fingers or have a magic wand, that's what I that's what I've targeted, and that's why I've always gone at the federal level. I still think that the Federal Reserve will ultimately collapse on its own, um, yeah. but I would prefer not to have that because we're well, <laughs> we're already we're already it, witnessing my, what it produces, which is societal decay. My nightmare is that 
and what and another reason kind of when I talk to even a conservative about being anti-war or trying to bring them around what I what I talk about is like that yeah this debt fuel the like even if you even if you hate social security and two-thirds of the federal budget is welfare state stuff a third of it that is easier to do away with is the war like we spent six trillion dollars on Iraq and Afghanistan alone. We spend a trillion dollars a year when you add in the nukes and the V and the VA benefits. Yep. Um, so DOD's budget is like seven hundred billion, and then you add in the nukes, which fall under the Department of Education's benefit or educa- uh, <laughs> energy's benefit, uh, energy's budget, and the uh, VA like housing loans and VA um, GI Bill which are really the benefit package of the military, when you put all those together, it's a trillion dollars. Yep. If you went back to before 9-11 and we didn't have any of these wars and we cut the military and lived lived off the peace dividend, we wouldn't have the debt we have now. No, you know what I mean? Not, not a fraction of it, for sure. So even if you're talking to a conservative person, you give them like, dude, like the military is not really a conservative thing. It's socialism wrapped in red, white, and blue. You just can't see it. It's wearing red, white, and blue camouflage, so you just don't even know it's there. Well, good good luck convincing some of the MAGA <laughs> folks of that. But uh, it's a it's a compelling argument. It, it, I mean, I've always attacked the military expenditures on a uh, fiscal conservative level when I'm speaking mm-hmm. with Republican folks, and I've had so, some success. I mean, oftentimes it takes years, but yeah. eventually you can convince even the hardest non-believer. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of different approaches we could take. I think. I really am convinced that this defend the guard thing, it could, if you take away the wars, the other thing too, that I worry about when you talk about the feds going to collapse and what I worry about is Imperial. I genuinely worry about Imperial collapse. There's a lot of people that worry about debt collapse and what will America look like when the, when the social security checks don't cash or they do cash, but they don't even buy a loaf of bread. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people that worry about that. Anybody who's paying attention should be worried about that. For sure. But, but I, um, what I'm genuinely afraid of is when that happens and you have this trillion dollar imperial structure that we become maniacal. Yeah. You know what I mean? That our military does not respond well to that. Or it's, a our real, government. It's, a, it's a real serious concern. I mean, what what is it that that made it so that it was a, a relatively peaceful decline with uh, USSR? Like, can can we model that? You know, I, 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 I don't, so I don't really know. I think in part the somewhat, and I, I'm going to, you know, a, sto- a historian of this is going to, um, I'm going to do a poor job of this. So a historian of this is going to like roll in their <laughs> grave if they hear me say this, but to a certain extent, there was a, the, the satellite states of the USSR were satellite states. Mm-hmm. Your Belarusian government, your Polish government, they, they did, the East Germany collapsed on its own. The USSR didn't collapse for a year or two later. Mm-hmm. It was just this, there was this moment where the East German government, when the, when the, when, you know, what's the famous story is that Putin was sitting at the KGB office and trying to get on the line to Gorbachev and Gorbachev didn't answer or, you know, and, and when they didn't say, well, we need to violently suppress this, then the East Germans just did their own thing and the Russians didn't swarm in because the biggest, you know, I saw this really crazy, interesting BBC article about the the USSR, the Soviet army's headquarters in East Germany. 
and how it's this like weird um it's sort of like if you go to an old tuberculosis i don't know if you had these where you grew up but like around maryland and stuff there's these old like tuberculosis clinics that are like all shut down like these state hospitals from the 19 teens <laughs> i think i think that, we like, had we had on uh, halloween you go sneak into one when you're a teenager kind of stuff yeah, we, it's like overgrown <laughs> trees through it characteristic you know I, I i can't say we had those i think we had mental hospitals that got closed but i think they got converted yeah. to regular hospitals so yeah so yeah and god knows like being a teenager sneaking into like even if it has been 100 years i don't feel like sneaking into tuberculosis clinic is the best idea but no i'd avoid it <laughs> i'd avoid it for sure but like these like it has this old like so it was this giant like military base uh of the soviet army in east germany and basically they were all sitting around waiting for orders to like suppress like the way they did to the Czechs. when the orders didn't come they didn't do anything so hmm. um but that's because they also were like, they were holding up a vassal state. Right. You know what I mean? They weren't holding up the United States. So I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what, like, how do we model that when basically what happened was that it's, there it's was different. a Soviet army unit there. Yeah. And when East Germany kind of collapsed, they were all just sat around like, well, nobody's telling us what to do. So I guess we'll just sit around and watch. You so, know what I mean? So what is your fear? What, I mean, paint the, the dark, the grim picture. What, what transpires? Cause I can't even envision it. I think mainly imperial flailing, starting a war with this fiction, this Keynesian fiction that still exists that most Americans believe that World War II created prosperity. Right. You know what I mean? That somehow the best answer that the the people in charge can come up with is to start a war with China or 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 that's my, some that's proxy war. Yeah, that and, is my fear. And while we're doing that, our own economy collapses the way that Germany's collapsed during the war or, you know, and then there's nothing to be had at home because the money is worthless. No one will take it. Um, all of those things that happen when your government prioritizes war. And so breaking down the imperialism and bringing all the troops out of those risky situations is a priority because that takes away that option from them yeah it takes you know away I mean? the, the imperial flail uh, yeah because i think that's I, i'm afraid that's what they'll do is that they i mean that they'll start some war that will get people behind them and supporting them temporarily and then the and then all of a sudden the chickens will come home to roost something will fall like the pieces will fall apart while we're in that while we're in the midst of some conflict uh, i my personal opinion is that you have been experiencing and living through imperial flail your entire life i would agree uh, i would agree yeah so, I mean, so it's, it's just, just a matter of the fact that the u.s dollar is the reserve currency is the underpinning by which they and the fed uh, are the underpinning by which that they can continue to flail and that's why i always target the fed as the real you know fuel source for the mm -hmm. most of the evil shit that we're still able to do and I, but I see, I totally see what you're talking about. I mean, and, and World War Three is is the the fear ultimately. And and we're seeing it too with like, I mean, another one, two sort of thoughts with Iran, right? Um, Europe is not on board with our increasing of sanctions. The world is not on board with it. They like we we pushed too far with sanctioning Iran. And they're trading gold for oil now um, and whatnot. They're trading they're, they, 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 they're and Europe too has, you know, it's not just the Fed. It's also the SWIFT system that clears the checks yep. and more and more countries are just ignoring that. 
yeah. and going around it and finding well, a different way to and, clear payments. Yeah. And many of them are going Remnimby or whatever yeah. it's called. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, we, we are, but, but what that tells me is that because you and I are able to identify it, that means a very high level people in the fed are able to identify it too. The fact that they're doing that, even though it risks their, their station in the world as the global economic power in terms of the dollar tells me that they, they know that the game is on borrowed time. Like they have to keep going because otherwise the whole, the whole system collapses. Or, or do you think that it's, that they're just ignorant to Austrian economic policy and that they think that their power is going to be maintained just by being military might. You know, I, so this is where the petrodollar stuff that I'm not really fully equipped to talk about comes into play. I understand that, it decently, but yeah. Okay. So you, you, um, but to a certain extent, that's what, what I believe is really the end game of all our imperialism in the Gulf is actually controlling and why the spread, why these uninhabited islands in the South China Sea are such a major concern for us. And we call it like, they call it like freedom of the seas and that, you know, and be the ability to navigate and all that. It's really, I think that they're trying, they, they know that currency wise, they can't sanction or control China. They, they, but, you know, and, the Gulf, like when we fight wars in the Gulf for oil, we don't get, we don't use Gulf oil. Maybe no. like less than 10% of the oil in the United States comes from the Gulf. Right. Okay. And, and not much goes to Europe either. Like they get that from North Africa. The mm-hmm. Gulf oil goes to China, yep. 70% of it, I think. Mm-hmm. But as long as we have a chokehold on it, then China has that, that's our, that is really our way of controlling China. And the reason the Spratly Islands are contested is that if China gets its own tap to its own oil, we can't strangle them in the grave if we want to. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then um, it forces them to play nice. Yeah. And it, it's, ex- I, I think that is what's going on. I don't know. I don't really, I, it's not, I don't have a good source for that. That's just me thinking about the issues. Like, why do we care? Like when all of this oil goes to China, why do like people, you know, it started with people talking about the war for oil and I'm sitting there thinking we don't need like, it. <laughs> yeah, we need it. And then I start. No, no, no. I'm, say, I'm saying we don't. We don't need, yeah, we no. don't need it. Well, yeah. well, at first I was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. They've got the oil. We buy oil from them. You know what I mean? And then I yeah. learned, and then I started looking. It's like, well, we don't even buy oil from them. <laughs> what the hell is that? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's really an outdated <laughs> like, conspiracy theory. And oh, that it kind of brings me around uh, or at least makes me think of like a conversation I had once where it's like, well, on one level, like I was, this is when you're having an argument with some person that says like the Middle East is always going to be screwed up and they're always going to be fighting each other and there's some backwards culture and whatever. Um, I was having a discussion with one of them and this is where I kind of happened on this thought is the idea that um, ultimately, I like why, okay, if that were true and all of our, all of the oil there goes to China, why are we stabilizing the Middle East for China, <laughs> let them run the empire that keeps that mess under wraps. Let yeah. them bankrupt themselves trying to keep Iran and Saudi Arabia pitted against each other. You know what I mean? Let yeah. them run an empire in the Middle East and see what comes. Yeah, let them. Bleed Why the hell should out. we bankrupt ourselves for that? Well, uh, 
I, I think you and I both know the answer. It's that they have to make sure, and this is this is where the petrodollar con- conspiracy theory comes in, is that they yeah. have to make sure that oil continues to be sold in U.S. dollars because that is the true underpinning. Because otherwise, our currency exactly yeah would be would collapse. Completely. And that that's why Saddam got taken out because he he threatened and started to trade in. I think it was rubles. I think he went the yeah. Russian route. Um, Iran has done the same and any basically any country that tries that's where we invade and yeah i, th- I think i, I mean I, granted it is a conspiracy theory but if you look at the history of it it's uh-huh. like a happens b happens and and, and, and over and the, over again the, and you know the thing is another just this just uh this is a real uh, this is an aside to an aside at this point um but iran as a threat is such a joke I know. Like it's like it's it's less of a threat than Russia. It's fucking crazy. And 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 not only that, but Iran as a threat is as a potential for it's impo- when we like the people who think we could invade Iran are are right up there with the people that think Russia is going to take over um over Colorado tomorrow. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the people that think that we could invade Iran successfully are absurd there's no way you like when like um when i in january when all that stuff started happening with saddam i you get in these discussions and people start saying well we just need to fly some some bombers over there and we'll bomb them back to the stone age we don't need to invade you know iran is not iraq iran has a has mountains near its coast it has control of the straits of hormuz so we can't get it. They'll be able to keep our carriers out of the Gulf or we'll lose a couple billion dollars in carriers. Yep. Um, they, we can't invade by sea because of that. We can't invade by land because we'd have to go through Iraq or Kuwait. If we go through Kuwait, we have to deal with a marshland that's almost impenetrable um, between Kuwait and, and uh, so even if we get through the marsh, then right after the marsh is a range of mountains. Yeah, so it's and, got it's got to be Iraq. But tell tell us why. That and then work. if we go through Iraq, well, Iraq is two thirds Shia and friendly to Iran, and you can our lines of logistics would be untenable. Yeah, they would be like IEDs galore. You people, people, they have eat the explosively formed projectile Iranian IED threat that. I don't necessarily believe really existed in Iraq in the early 2000s will become fucking real. Yeah. You know what I mean? It will be. um, So, so forget about supplying us all that war effort through Iran. We would, we'd be lucky to get over the Elbers mountains. And then even after you get over those mountains, you have a thousand miles of desert and then you have Tehran, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. It's, it's unlikely to, to succeed. I think that is, that would be my fear, though, for the final flail. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, it's it's, and they I, they keep pushing for it, and it's absurd. It's just laughable because for thirty we, years straight, it's yeah, fucking we, crazy. You know, my my uh, I, I I I've never ever really been able to pin my father. This is a an aside. This is um, my father was most likely a spy. All right, uh, uh, he <laughs> he um. He was in Vietnam. He was a signals intelligence guy in Vietnam. It also just so happens he is an expert marksman. <laughs> and um, and then he got a job out of the Army at the NSA. And then out of the NSA, he got a job at the Department of Agriculture inspecting grain shipments to Poland. 
Um, Interesting. <laughs> so he would like periodically go to Poland. Um, and he has just a lot of funny stories. He has this real like, um, just there's a lot of stuff he won't tell, talk about his life history. And it's it, the point is to say, though, there's something about Iran that offends him deeply at his core. He's this boomer. And there's something about Iran that he can never forgive, never forget. They are the ultimate enemy that must be destroyed. And I've never been able to get to it. Do you think what it's the, ho- it? the hostage crisis? I mean, that, 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 that just doesn't add up. You no, know, it, that's do- not it doesn't. Enough. But I'm just I'm you trying know? to think of like yeah. the one thing that would uh, really deeply offend a patriotic, uh, you know, military guy from that era. I, I don't know. And and um, and I've never really been able like I've never really been able to get to the bottom of it. But I think it has something to do with basically them managing to stop the CIA from its misdeeds there and and take away its control. Um, and all that's to say, like Iran is yeah, it, it would be the imperial flail if we did ever. It would be and what the problem is too when you have your more neoliberal your people that just believe we can bomb them. Right. We'll just bomb them. We'll destroy their nuclear facility. They haven't thought about like Iran is different in the sense that if what will happen, what would inevitably, and this goes for any war. When you hear people warmongering, if you'll give me a second to get on a soapbox, people will always talk about, well, we'll just bomb them back to Stone Age or we'll fighters, aircraft get shot down, aircraft break. You know what I mean? And we've never really fought over heavily contested airspace. You know, the Iranians have their air force is pretty much worthless, but their their air defenses are more robust or equal to um, Iraq's. You know what I mean? And we lost some aircraft in Iraq. We, we did like it, in the beginning. It wasn't really it didn't really make a lot of news. Everyone was lost in the shock and awe stuff. Right. But we lost aircraft. And that was after 20 years of flying, of maintaining no-fly zones and blowing up any surface-to-air missiles they had. We haven't done that over Iran. Mm-hmm. And so even if we just did a bombing-only campaign, some punitive bombing situation, some point it would, someone would end up in a hostage crisis again. And I think that, that was like one of my things where I was trying to tell people, like, if you're calling for bombing Iran, you're calling for war with Iran. And yeah. not just not just because bombing is war, but because every boomer out there that's so scarred by the Iran hostage crisis, when they see an American pilot being held captive for bombing them, they're going to lose their frigging minds mm-hmm. and and they're going to want to go for blood. And then we'll end up in a quagmire that makes Iraq and Afghanistan combined look like a cakewalk, look like yeah. a nice Sunday afternoon. And I, and, I also think that you know, Israel is the real driving force behind our animus or our active protagonist protagonist relationship with, uh, uh, with Iran. And I think that they've been looking for an opportunity to fucking bomb the shit out of them for the longest time. So if it, if well, it were to go that route, I think that's probably where, how it plays out. And I would, it's a I catastrophe. would, I, I believe that to some, I, I'm, you know, it's all muddled together. And I think they're all things. I think the petrodollar is a part of it. I think Israel is a part of it. At least rhetorically. Um, I mean, uh, the, yeah, the it's politicians it, 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 there it's are convinced crazy about Americans. But, I know. But the, the crazy part is, I mean, during the Iran-Iraq war, Israel was on Iran's side. You know? it what They didn't flip in the 80s. 
they didn't flip when it became a, a theological regime. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Israel very cynically has managed to like pick and choose who they're friendly with and what time. And then it's so strange now with Iran being on the side of Azerbaijan against the Armenians and also Turkey and Iran being on the side of Azerbaijan. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's crazy town. Um, I, I, I can't even, I know nothing about, I don't know anything to really talk about the caucuses except that like Israel plays a role in this and they play countries against each other yeah. just like every other country does. But I, I can't attribute it all to, well, Israel just hates Iran and Iran just hates Israel because Iran hated Israel after 1979, but still traded constantly shifting alliances there that I will not even pretend to understand. <laughs> um, you and me both. And yeah. that, that's part of the reason I'm, I don't buy the argument of like, we have to have some sort of force to stop, you know, genocides. I don't ever know what the fuck's actually going on because it's so propagandized by all parties that it's like, do I, even if, you know, even if I was, I, I can't even pretend that if I was living in, you know, 1930s America that I would have known with certainty. I mean, most of the Americans didn't know uh, to know with certainty that the, the Holocaust was occurring at that specific time. It's like to, to imagine Ancapistan being needed to fight those fights is kind of deluded well, and, to me. And you know, one other thing that's, statist military and statist propaganda does that really it, it was screwing my, with my head I, th I think you would you've been on um break the rules podcast before i think i, I caught you on one i no? don't think i've been on break the rules it's Ooh. an interesting one okay, it's I'll like this it free form they get like random they do it for like four hours and oh shit like no, no no people I, was, on. I was yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i thought that i saw you yeah that was a blast <laughs> yeah it's kind of crazy right yeah yeah i um, forgot the name of it my bad and i was talking to uh just before the show started with like uh with keith knight a little bit and i was talking about this weird mind-blown moment i had Oh, why just a little while ago where like i had already known that like in world war one they had the you know the the germ the the damn huns are bayoneting babies and right. and i knew that in in iraq they said that the kuwaitis were um were or, or the iraqis were taking kuwaiti babies out of incubators and bayoneting them or throwing them against the wall yep and and i knew that um it was all this propaganda that's always like babies that the, the these horror horrifying invaders and i remember i was having a conversation with someone and i and I, I still believe this is true, but I was having a conversation around the time of the August 5th, like the, the memorial of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And people were saying, well, it was justified because the Japanese were so evil and they were, they were bayoneting babies. The Japanese were, yeah. I, and I remembered watching a documentary, a BBC, like about the, the horror in the East. Um, it was all wartime footage and how a, how a Japanese soldier, he had his concubine woman from Korea or Chinese or Korean concubine woman, and she was carrying her baby and she got tired of her falling behind. So he just grabbed her baby and flung her off a cliff. And that's how horrifying and evil the Japanese are. Yep. And I just had this moment of pause and was like, it's always 
throwing babies, babies off cliffs or <laughs> it's always babies. And so now do I, I, I what the state does by propagandizing everyone by all the ridiculous propaganda you see against Japan like they the buck teeth and the glasses and they're not even human they're half ape but somehow yeah and Asian. the hun in Germany yeah. yeah and the dehumanizing propaganda well damn it what what's true and what's not yeah, the state, it, through its propaganda, completely unfounds reality. So you don't know what genocides are real and which ones are made up anymore. Exactly. That, because that's, the state that's will always use genocide. If you give away that we need a military to prevent humanitarian crises, then the state, the military, will always just gin up a humanitarian crisis when it wants a war. Exactly. And, and, and they have. And they have over and over again. So you can't give them that playbook to use or they'll use your emotions against you every time. And it really confounds me because like, I want to believe that some of these things are true. I do. Like I I can't let go of some of them, Mm -hmm. but, and I don't want to be so skeptical. I don't want to fall into like the Holocaust denier route or some other thing that, but, but I can see where people do because the state ruins everything. Yeah, they just lie so much that you you lose all sense of reality. It's it's really challenging. I like especially for people like you and I that are really thinking critically about these topics. It's like you can't buy any of the propaganda at face value and what that forces you to do is get ex, you know, non-mainstream sources of information to try and confirm things and then you might end up with real truth and you might end up with conspiracy theory nonsense in that realm as well. So it's like it's a really it's a really unhealthy parasitic sick way of uh, treating the populace and they've been doing it for so long where we're they and they borderline perfected it it's just like they just know the just right nudge like they just need one photo of a syrian baby um exactly with, from a gas attack to get us to, to get everyone they, they almost got us into syria with it so yeah um anyways man it, we've we've gone a long yeah. time so let, yeah, let me yeah, yeah. uh let go ahead and tell people how, where they can find you Okay, so I'm Scott. Um, I'm at MD Vet Four Maryland Vet. The number four piece um, is where I would finish that sentence. I'm uh, at MD Vet Number Four. Um, I would love for you to go check out uh, DefendTheGuard.us and consider trying to defeat the state with its own at its own game, at least a little bit, some yeah. local movement. Um, and uh, it's been really great talking to you and if anyone has any questions if anyone sees any flaws tweet at me and i'll go to battle for a few hours with you (laughs) i love it man well thank you so much for the time Uh, i learned a lot so i think uh the audience will feel the same and i appreciate you thanks take care appreciate it see you man see you peace well that was an interesting one thank you so much to scott for coming on make sure you guys give him a follow and as promised we are brought to you by what's happening and that is uh, on Twitter. You can follow them at Shane Scalf, S-C-A-L-P-H, and at Petite Nikoko. The lovely couple of Liberty, the Liberty couple, the people that met on Twitter and fell in love. Happiest, most beautiful story. Good way to end it. Here's a little clip from their podcast so you can check them out. What if Donald Trump nominated Joe Biden? <laughs> Supreme Court. <laughs> nominate some random. I'm gonna nominate Kamala Harris. Now what are you gonna do? She's a minority and she's a woman. Now what? And she's on your side. And then yeah. they'd be pissed because right. it was Donald Trump, and then they'd be anti-Kamala. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be funny if that actually happened. All right. So the next one is vote like she's fucking watching. Well, that's creepy as what, fuck. What, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> Santa Claus. Now it's like she knows when you're sleeping and she knows when you're awake. She knows 
who you're going to vote for. So if you vote for Do uh, Joe Biden, she'll love you forever. But if you vote for Donald Trump, you're getting coal in your sack. You're going to get a what? <laughs> you're going to get a you know, sack the, of coal. Yeah, sack That's of what coal. You meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get a coal in your sack? Mm -hmm. That sounds so wrong. That sounds terrible. But their show isn't. That's what's H-A-P-A-N-I-N-G, iTunes, Stitcher, subscribe, follow. Love you guys. We're out.